Well, good afternoon to all of you. Good to be here today. I missed a couple of Sabbaths being out of state, but always nice to be here among you, with you, and to enjoy that. Well, this is the sixth week, sixth Sabbath in the Count of Pentecost, which means next Sabbath is the seventh one, and then Pentecost is a week from tomorrow, a week from Sunday. I uh, appreciated the sermon that Nelson picked out for last week uh, about fine wine and how God is turning the grapes on his vineyard into wine and how it'll be fine, and then he'll drink with us when we become the new wine in his kingdom. It's just, uh, even though I had given that sermon 25 years or so ago, uh, just going back over that and being reminded of that analogy, it kind of broke me up. I was, I shed some tears there. It just, uh, it hit me pretty hard, the promises God has made and the incredible analogy that fits his spilled blood and ties with the wine and and everything that he is and has done for us and is going to do for us. And uh, that was a real good one to hear this close to Pentecost when uh, so much is important about that day. Uh, Monday night, 7.30, we have a New Moon Bible study. Uh, Third month of the year is beginning, God's year. That's Monday night at 7.30 for Bible study. Let's go to the book of Lamentations to begin today. Uh, I'll read the first verse or two here. It says, How does the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the peoples and princess among the provinces. How has she become tributary? She weeps sore in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. And it goes on then for five chapters to talk about the condition of the church as we've known it these last two and a half decades, actually more, three decades nearly. Uh, How it's been blown apart and sits solitary, not many people around, and the ones that are are confused, frustrated, and so on. And you read this, and you read our history of the last 30-some years in the church, and as you read that, you will also be reading uh, the way this nation is headed and going to be in the next months and years. Uh, Same description, exactly, of what has happened spiritually to the church, and even physically in that sense, in terms of numbers and so on, uh, is about to happen to our nation, and it's already in process now, and picking up steam day by day as it goes on and on, and pretty soon, Americans could read this little book and say, this is us, because it will fit perfectly with what's going on. I want to spend a little time, rather than going through this, because it is truly a sad little book. It's named The Lamentations of Jeremiah, the things he lamented, the things he was sorry to think about and have to say. But the desolation of the church has been almost entire now, and that of the nation is going to happen much quicker, I believe, than it did to the church. The church fell apart really pretty rapidly. It's just that it's been a long time in this condition. Uh, The nation will not be that long in this condition until Christ intervenes and takes it again out of it. But uh, this is a perfect description. So I'll skip over that and go to chapter 5. And the ones previous to this one sounded like this one, some of it even worse. He says, Remember, O Eternal, what has come upon us. Consider and behold our reproach. Our inheritance is turned to strangers, our houses to aliens. We don't 
even rent church buildings much anymore. And that which we thought we were about to inherit uh, as a result of serving God has been turned to strangers. All the buildings that we built in Pasadena and Big Sandy and Brickett Wood have been turned to strangers. Uh, some of them have been even knocked down. Beautiful buildings. So they don't even exist anymore. So we are orphans and fatherless. Our mother, uh, mothers are as widows. That which underpinned us, our leadership, is gone. We've drunken our water for money. Our wood is sold to us. Uh, in other words, it's hard to survive, spiritually speaking. The wood for cooking, uh, the water of the Word, has diminished so much from the church that it's hard to find anything. Amos even says they'll go east to west and north to south to try to find in this famine of the Word. Our necks are under persecution. We labor and have no rest. No matter what, it seems... Uh, there's difficulties. Uh, let's pass on down a little bit. I won't go through all this. You can kind of glance at it as we go down. But verse 15, the joy of our heart is ceased. Our dance is turned into mourning. Uh, we used to go and have happy feasts and have films about the work and what was going on and young ambassadors singing and all kinds of things and it was to be happy and glorious, and that's gone. The elders have ceased from the gate. The young men from their music don't sing it anymore. The joy of our heart is ceased. It's turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us that we have sinned. It's what he warned us about in Revelation 3 and said he would spew us out, and here we are. I'm not going to go through a whole lot of this. I didn't want to spend a whole sermon on Lamentations. We've been over this material <laughs> dozens and dozens of times, really, uh, in different parts of the Bible. And it says, For this our heart is faint. For these things our eyes are dim. Can't see much. Not much vision. Look through a dark glass darkly. Because of the mountain of Zion, which is desolate, the foxes walk upon it. Uh, foxes, Christ referred to Herod as a fox, an Edomite, kind of a nickname for the Edomites. But here in Mount Zion, the Mormons pretty well run everything in Utah, and the Promised Land is destitute of God's people. And even physically, we're in a pretty severe drought now. Uh, Powell and Mead both drying up and... Uh, Normally, this time of year, there's plenty of grass and weeds and things out in the fields for the goats to chew on. Now it's just almost desolate. Uh, it was, I was in Montana where everything was just green velvet all over the hills, beautiful green everywhere you looked, and the trees green as well. And all that green was just such a marvelous thing to behold uh, with the blue sky above and the green. I was told them as a kid, don't wear green and blue together. Why not? God made the earth green and the sky blue and they fit beautifully together. But whatever. But to come from that green and it just, as we came south, it just kind of got drier and drier till we got to the pit here. <laughs> uh I do believe there's a reason, very dramatic reason, that God gave us this. Uh, had He wanted to bless from the very beginning, He could have given us, oh, I can name a thousand places He could have given us that are far more beautiful in many respects than here and don't have foxtails and goat heads. Uh, gorgeous places we can go visit. But He could have given us, and He could have given us a lot of it. But he didn't. He gave us a little bit of this. Now, it has its beauty. I don't, don't get me wrong. Zion is so gorgeous, and these red rocks are. But he put us in the desert so that he can glorify his name by turning the, the desert into greenness and have it bloom as a rose. 
uh, it is to his glory that it would start out this way and turn, which is slated to happen. But you read through, and the book of Lamentation leaves you a little hopeless. Uh, it just sort of drops you there. And he does say, though, that the days of the Edomites are about done and God will return. Uh, but the last verse says, But you have utterly rejected us. You are very angry against us. And certainly he has been. There's no questioning that. You go through the first chapter or two of this little book, and it says, I have done this probably several dozen times. God takes full credit for what has happened to the church. He did it to us. And there's a reason for that. But I wanted to start out with this little review in Lamentations and then contrast it. Uh, the last sermon I gave uh, was about fearing God and fearing not man and all the things that man can do. Uh, and this, this sermon will, in some ways, kind of tie in with that. Let's go to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. In verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the eternal... And he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Contrast that then with what we just examined in Lamentations, and see that even though we sinned greatly, and God has been very angry with us and has spewed us out, if we will forsake our wickedness and our unrighteousness and turn to him, he will have mercy on us and abundantly pardon. Now, there's some immediate hope uh, on top of where we have been. I want us today to, if nothing else, gain some hope out of where we've been and all that we have gone through and all the emotions up and down and searching and trying to find and and wandering from group to group and all the things that the church has gone through, not just us here, but the whole church has been going through all of this. And it's not been a happy time. I mean, in the nation, they were, everybody was saying, have a nice day. And we weren't. <laughs> Overall, we just weren't. I mean, that doesn't mean we didn't have some happiness and joy in life at all, but our situation has been dire, let's put it that way, spiritually, but God gives us some hope. Isaiah 41, verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and we just read about water having to be bought, and their tongue fails for thirst, I, the Eternal, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Notice that word, not forsake them. Uh, we'll see it quite a few times today. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, uh, the acacia, the myrtle, the oil tree, and set in the desert the fir tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Eternal has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. So, in this dire strait we find ourselves, God gives us hope over and over. Psalm 138. Psalm 138. Let's look at verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. Now, this is David speaking. 
and David is the ultimate king of all Israel and the kingdom of God, is speaking of himself, and he's speaking of the nation Israel over which he was king, and he will be king again over all Israel. So, these are his thoughts as he went through the vicissitudes of life. You'll revive me. You shall stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand shall save me. Now, he went through some pretty dire times in his life, didn't he? He had a lot of enemies in Israel. He had enemies even of his own sons who wanted to kill him and take over. Uh, difficulties right and left. Other nations fighting him, trying to take over. But he looked to God and said his right hand would save him. The Eternal will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Eternal, endures forever. Forsake not the works of your own hands. So he's pleading that God will not forsake him. David was the work of God's hands. And each and every one of us is the work of God's hands. And not only that, as a human being generally, we are especially the work of his hands being called to his purpose at this time to be candidates to be a bride of Christ. So we are indeed the work of his hands, but the work of his hands was not living up to being the bride of Christ. That was the problem. So therefore, he has chastened us and cast us out and been angry with us and spewed us apart. But our plea is David's plea. Forsake not the work of your hand. And if you read through the Psalms, which we don't have time to do all of today, you'll find many times where uh, David does talk to God and show hope and belief that God would not forsake him, that God would take care of it. That theme is all through the book of Psalms. So I just picked out one here where he says, please don't forsake me. Let's go to Joshua. No, let's, uh, one more Psalm, 94. One more Psalm. Chapter 94, and here, I'll pick it up in verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Eternal, and teach him out of your law. So we've been chastened, and hopefully now we're being taught out of the law to fulfill this, to do this, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. So there is a change coming where God will protect those who will serve him and keep his commandments while the pit is being dug for the wicked. And the pit is being dug now in terms of vaccinations, in terms of more diseases going to be released upon us, in terms of destroying and withholding the food of the nation, so that the scriptures will be fulfilled of famine and pestilence and then the sword. So they're working at taking away our food. That will lead to civil war and all kinds of trouble. that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Eternal will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. For judgment shall return to righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. So he shows a period here of chastening, and that it's now going to come upon the nation, but true judgment will return in righteousness to those who will follow his way. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? The Bill Gateses, the George Soroses, the Schwabs, the Obamas, the Bidens, the Russians, the Chinese, on and on it goes. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? 
or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. I would have died. That's what's coming up on our nation right now as we sit here. And we would suffer death. Our children, all of us. Unless God intervenes. And he says he will. says judgment will return to righteousness and he will not forsake us. There's a, an undeniable promise that God is not going to forsake us whatsoever. I find that scripture pretty exciting in the light of what we've been through over these last years. That help is coming just in the nick of time. You know, if you go through, you could do a sermon on that one and be a nice Bible study to show how conditions would get worse and worse and worse with some individual or the nation or whoever it might have been. And then right at the moment when you're grasping on the end of the rope by the knot with one hand about to slip off is when God intervenes. I've seen it with healings. I've seen it with all kinds of things where God would not answer until all hope otherwise was gone. And then he would intervene. And that's what he's saying here. Uh, I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I will take care of you. Uh, and even our flights, doesn't he say, will be just barely saving us. The one there in Matthew 24. Don't go back. Don't look back. Just when you see those armies gathering about Jerusalem, just go. Holler at the kids as you leave. <laughs> Come on, kids. And go. Don't go back to get them. No, your kids need to be trained well enough when dad or mom says, Come here now, that they will. They need to understand these things. They need to be obedient enough that all you have to say is, Come! And there will be no argument. There will be no problem. They just will. Your kids need that. A lot of people talk to their kids and their kids pay no attention. They're running around the grocery store or whatever. No attention. It doesn't make any difference what the parent says. The kid doesn't listen. just goes on doing what he's doing. What if that kid was about to run out in the street in front of a truck? And you say, stop. And he doesn't hear you. Oblivious. Not used to listening to you. Anyway, won't listen anymore either. It's all over. Done. God hears. Let's go from there to Joshua. Chapter 1 here. <clears throat> now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Eternal, it came to pass that the Eternal spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, his servant, his help, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. That was inevitable, uh, going to happen. God had told him he wouldn't enter the promised land, uh, and he didn't, because he struck the rock. That doesn't mean he wasn't God's servant. He made a mistake there, and it did cost him, but it didn't cost him eternal life. It didn't cost him the kingdom of God. He's mentioned in, in uh, Hebrews 11. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Now they had been through a lot, hadn't they, in that forty years of wandering since they had been sprung from Mitzrayim. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given to you, as I said to Moses. We are poised on the edge of the promised land right now, today where we sit in this building. We're in the edge of it. And that's the area he's talking about here. From the wilderness to this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. 
There shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Now, he's going to give us that promise as he lets us again possess the promised land. Joshua's a prophecy, not just of what he was about to do with Joshua and those people, but of us today. No one will be able to stand before you, and they won't. Uh, we'll have power over the nations. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you, nor forsake you. That must have been good for Joshua to hear. He'd been there doing as Moses directed all his life, and now God tells him, I'm going to be to you just like I was with Moses. I will not forsake you. And he tells us the same. This is, again, a prophecy about today. Be strong and of a good courage. He tells us that there in Zephaniah, in Haggai. says the same words there about the end-time work as he does here to Joshua. For unto this people uh, shall you divide for an inheritance the land which I uh, swore to your fathers to give them. Only be you strong and very courageous. Repeats it and emphasizes it. Be strong and courageous. We've been weak. We've been confused. We've been frustrated. We haven't known which way to go. God is going to give us direction. And he says, be strong. Fear not man and work. that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then shall you have good success. This book, these words, this law, are the key to success. So he told Joshua, you stick close to this word and you think about it, and you'll be successful in all that you do. So God says, I won't forsake you. I won't leave you. You don't have to worry about that. You just be strong and courageous and get the job done. That echoes pretty loud. Verse 9. Have not I commanded you, be strong and of a good courage. That's three times. Be not afraid, neither be you dismayed. For the eternal your God is with you wherever you go. Those are comforting words right now as we see our nation headed into total destruction. And we are here with it. And God will make a separation at some point to those who are willing to obey and serve Him and those who are not, until the pit is digged for the wicked, as we already read. Then they're going into it, and we're not, because we're going to Zion and be protected there. So He says, don't fear, be strong, be of good courage. I will be with you. I will not forsake you. I'll take care of you. First uh, Samuel 12. First Samuel 12. And here, let's pick it up in verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, Fear not, you have done all this wickedness, now, we might stand here and say, hey, he wrote that about us. Fear not. You've done this wickedness. Yes, we were Laodicean. We were self-righteous. We were lackadaisical. We were all these things. Yet turn not aside from following the eternal, but serve the eternal with all your heart. Now, you can find this advice in quite a few scriptures in the Bible. And turn you not aside, for then should you go after vain things which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. 
Our nation is seeking vain things, materialism, money, you name it, but not God. They're vain. They won't help. For the Eternal will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Eternal to make you His people. It pleased Him to call you and me and to make us His people just as he did ancient Israel, just as he did the early New Testament church. He's raised up the church here again at the end. And he will not forsake us for his great name's sake. Focus on that. His reputation is at stake here. He's saying, for my reputation, for my honor, for my glory, I will not forsake you. So he's making a promise on his own reputation, is what he's doing. And his reputation is of greatness. So this is a very powerful statement that he's making. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the eternal in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Eternal and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be consumed, both you and your king. So, uh, chastening, instruction, uh, guidance in what to do. And that God will not forsake you if you will just do your part. Now, did he not forsake the church? Not entirely. He didn't forsake us entirely. He punished us. He chastened us very, very severely. But what was he doing? He was standing back, waiting for repentance. And those who that, that do repent then are going to be called and brought to finish his work. So, he's never forsaken the work of his hand. He simply allowed a lot of trouble to come upon us that is self-inflicted, really, because he wants a higher standard out of us. And when we begin to meet that standard, then his blessing returns. Instead of turning his face from us, he will smile upon us. It's the same with a kid. Just because you're chastening your child or punishing him or even hurting his bottom doesn't mean you've forsaken him. That means you're not forsaking him. God chastens every son whom he loves. So, that proves, the fact that we've been through what we've been through, proves He loves us very deeply. And then when He hears true repentance coming out of our mouths and our hearts, He turns His face and is going to bless us again and show that He's not forsaken us. He's been angry, but being angry is not a forsaking. There's a difference there. Uh, let's go to First Chronicles 28. Just a few examples from God's history and Israel's history and some of the leaders that were there at that time. First uh, Chronicles 28 and here verse 19. They've been working on the temple here and... Uh, getting ready to build and so on. And David had been told that because of the violence that he had been as a fighter and so on, that he enjoyed it too much, God was not going to let him build a temple. Because the temple was to be of peace, and David, through some of his life, had been a pretty violent man. So there were consequences for that. But David still loved God. He still trusted God. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of this pattern. He knew how to build a temple. 
And then he gives Solomon some advice. David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and of good courage and do it. Now isn't that pretty much the words that God had used with Joshua? Be strong and do it. Be of good courage. Fear not. Another word that God said to Joshua. Nor be dismayed. Now that means that there would be enemies, there would be difficulties, there would be trials. But this would not be an easy job to do, and therefore the warning. For the eternal God, even my God, David says, will be with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Same words God used again with Joshua. Until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the eternal. So David imparts his son with that kind of encouragement. God himself didn't say that precisely to Solomon here, but it's the words of God that had been used before that David passed along to Solomon. We're beginning to see here, through several examples, the mind of God, the method of God, uh, the thing that he tells people before they start a project. And again, he said those same words to us in Zephaniah and Haggai about the end time work. Exact same words. That's the way God operates. So he not only gave hope back here, but he gives us the same words of encouragement as we prepare to do what God needs done. And he'll be with us, and he will not forsake us. Let's go to 1 Kings 8 then. 1 Kings 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes uh, out of the city of David, which is Zion. <clears throat> he had ended all the work in verse 51 of building the temple. You know, David told him, you're going to build it, go do it. Uh, be strong and of good courage. God will not forsake you. And here, he had done it. He finished it. Got the job done. God helped him. And he will us. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And they took up the ark and went through this process of dedicating the temple. But let's skip on down to verse 22. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Eternal in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath who keep covenant and mercy with your servants that walk before you with all their heart. Again, with all their heart. Now, he had been a very zealous person as a young man, and here he had been given a commission he had been given encouragement entering it. Now he had finished it. And now he's giving glory to God that it had happened as God had said. He hadn't been forsaken. And he had been strong and of great courage. And he had done what God wanted him to do. And now he turns around and thanks God who keeps covenant and mercy with his servants. They walk before him with a whole heart. Who have kept with your servant David, my father, that you promised him. So he reviews that. You fulfilled your promises to David, my father. You spoke also with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as of this day. God had come true. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel... Keep with thy servant David, my father, that you promised him, saying, There shall not fail you a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that your children take heed to their way, that they walk before me, as you have walked before me. So, claiming past promises for the future. 
And God has caused this to happen. Now, we may not have called them kings at some point in time, although the king line may have existed and may still, although it's been uh, polluted pretty badly uh, in Europe and so on. Uh, but God has always provided leadership. And king can mean anyone who is placed in charge to lead. Uh, an apostle, the apostles, uh, were in the position of leadership or rulership over the church. He changed it a bit, and it wasn't just like a king, but it was still the leadership that was there. Uh, verse 26, And now, God of Israel, let your word, I pray you, be verified, which you spoke to David. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have builded. You're bigger than this house. You're bigger than the world. You're bigger than the universe. Uh, this is a pretty pitiful thing. Even though it was a glorious, beautiful building, it, it didn't compare with the universe. <laughs> Yet have you respect to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today. Now, here's a humility in Solomon, is there not? Where he recognizes the power and the majesty of God and how small he is and how small what he had done was in comparison to God. That your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. And his name has been with his temple. And his temple now is a spiritual temple. And he's still with it. And he will be with it forevermore. That you may hearken to the prayer which your servant shall make toward this place. We are here to build a temple. Both spiritual and I do believe physical. And we need to have this attitude of humility and meekness. He even tells us, if we come to the wilderness and are meek and humble there in Zephaniah 2, that maybe he will protect us and guide us to do what is to be done. Same in Haggai and Zechariah. And hearken you to the supplication of your servant and of the people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place, and hear you in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. He's got to hear us before he forgives us. If any man trespass against his neighbor and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear, and the oath come before your altar in this house, then hear you in heaven and do and judge your servants, condemning the wicked to bring his way upon his head and justifying the righteous to give him according to his righteousness. Same things he says to the church all through the prophecies and the New Testament. When thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy, and hasn't the church been? Because they have sinned against you, and shall turn again to you, and confess your name, and pray, and make supplication to you in this house. Sounds like the prayer of Daniel there in uh, chapter 9, doesn't it? He asks for hum humility and forgiveness. Then hear you in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land which you gave to their fathers. This could be our prayer just as easily, couldn't it? Aren't these words that reflect your heart, your feeling, your mind? When heaven is shut up and there is no rain, it's been that way spiritually and now it's getting that way physically because it's now on the nation, not just the church. Because they have sinned against you. If they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, the nation is not going to turn any quicker than the church did. They're going to be devastated, just like the church was. But when they do repent, then hear you in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel, that you teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon the land, which you have given to your people for an inheritance. 
going to make the desert bloom as a rose. So this, again, is a prophecy. It's a past history of what occurred, but it's talking about what is about to occur before our very eyes. If there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locusts, or if there be caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, we're being threatened to have our cities destroyed by the king of the north right now. Putin's talking about sending hypersonic missiles. This is this is, could have been written this morning. Whatsoever sickness there be, what prayer and supplication uh, soever be made by any man or by all your people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart and spread forth his hands toward this house. Look to the temple of God. Look to God who inhabits the temple. Then what will God's be reaction, or his reaction be when that happens? Then hear you in heaven your dwelling place and forgive, and do and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart you know. For you even, you only, know the hearts of all the children of men. We don't even know our own heart that well, but he does. This wasn't just a building that was built for the sake of building a building. This was built to contain the spirit, the presence of God. And when people would look to it, then these were the consequences, good and bad. If they didn't look to it, they were bad. That they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. And we're about to enter that now and possess it. Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of your people Israel, but comes out of a far country for your name's sake. For they shall hear of your great name, and of your strong hand, and your stretched out arm, when he shall come and pray toward this house. Hear you in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calls to you for. God invited Gentiles into the church, and made them equal to Israelites. So this was fulfilled in the church. Uh, Solomon didn't understand the far-reaching that this prayer would have. That all the people of the earth may know your name to fear you. Isn't that what he says is going to happen here at the end? Ezekiel says it how many times? That they may know that I am the Eternal. They'll know from the east to the west who I am there in Isaiah 45 with the riches of God. That they may know that this house which I have builded is called by your name. God is going to make his name very, very well known. Hated, but known. Verse 45, Then hear you in heaven their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no man that sins not, and you be angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land where they were carried captive, and repent, and make supplication to you in the land of them that carried them captive, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely. We have committed wickedness. And we are a fulfillment of this down the road. He's talking about people down the road if they sin and then repent. And so return to you with all their heart, here it is again, and with all their soul, in the land of their enemies, which led them away captive, and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name. It doesn't matter which generation people are of. If they know of God, and they reject God, and then repent in their chastening, he forgives, and he blesses. That's just the way he's always done it, from Adam and Eve all the way down. So it hasn't changed for today, and it won't for the people now who are going through what they're beginning to go through in our nation.
Then hear you their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people that have sinned against you, and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against you, and give them compassion before them who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. It does no good for us to pray for our nation today. God says in Jeremiah, don't even pray for them, they will not repent. They're going to have to go through this, just like the church had to go through this. And when it's done, and those who have survived begin to turn and say, I think I better go find God, that he will hear, and the millennium will begin. For they be your people, and your inheritance, which you brought forth out of Mitzrayim from the midst of the furnace of iron, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant, and to the supplication of your people Israel, to hearken to them, and all that they call for to you. Remember, these aren't just words. He spread his hands open to the heavens, standing before all Israel, and is saying these words. And all Israel heard, and it wasn't long before all Israel turned from God again. So these words were well spoken. For you did separate them from among all the people of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by the hand of Moses, your servant, which you brought out of the when you brought our fathers out of Israel, O Lord God. And it was so when Solomon made an end of praying all this prayer and supplication to the Eternal. He rose from before the altar of the Eternal, from kneeling on his hands with his hands spread up to heaven. And he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel, saying, Blessed be the Eternal that has given rest to his people, Israel, according to all that he promised. Therefore has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. And he said, Be with us, and don't leave us, nor forsake us. That was Solomon's prayer and his admonition to the people and what he said to God. Don't forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and his commandments. And let these words which I have made supplication before the Eternal be near to the Eternal our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people, Israel, at all times, as the matter shall require. So he's telling us then that the words he said to God are words that we need to say to God. To glorify him, to be thankful to him, and to know that he will fulfill his promises. There's a lot of hope here. That God has promised before, and he's delivered. And he's promised, and he's delivered. He's promised and delivered. And he's promised us, and he will deliver when he feels our hearts have turned to him. Goes on down and says then in verse uh, 60, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. You and I are sitting here today in a godless world who who do not know who God is. They have not a clue who the God who wrote this book is. All the Protestants have no clue who Jesus Christ is and what he is doing and going to do. They think there's some secret rapture and everything's going to be just fine. They don't know him. They don't know what he's doing. They don't know what he's about to do. They don't know how he's going to go about it or how he's going to wrap it all up. It's all in here and they don't pay much attention to this. They just don't get the picture. And he has told us there in Isaiah and other places that we are to be instrumental in fulfilling verse 60. That the whole earth may know who God is. By the time the work is done and the two witnesses are killed in the streets of Jerusalem and then resurrected and ascend to Christ in the clouds, 
they're going to know who God is. And maybe they'll be getting close to ready to obey Him. But not quite. After that, the seven last plagues and the destruction of most of the rest of the people on earth. And after that, they'll be ready to serve Him. They'll know who He is ahead of time, but they still won't be ready to serve Him. Not till the seven last plagues are accomplished. It's going to take an awful lot. How much has it taken for us these last three decades to even begin to get to the place we need to be? It's been tough. It's been hard. We're still living, have been, in a nation of prosperity and everything going fairly well in the nation. We could make a living. We could have what we wanted. You turn to God when things are bad. (laughs) It's when you turn to God. And things are getting worse. And we see them getting worse day by day. And maybe that will help us to repent because we don't want to be a part of what we see happening in the news now more and more day by day. Our government planning to kill as many kids in Texas as they could kill with someone that they had trained to do it taken over by demons. We're getting into a sick time. Now you may say, would they plan to kill our children? Well, go read about abortion if you got a question about that. Man. Am I almost done? No. Let's go to Second Chronicles 15. Second Chronicles 15. As usual, there's more information in the Bible than you can possibly cover. So we do what we can. Get as much of it as we can. Second Chronicles 15. And here in... Uh, pick it up in verse 1, actually. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, and he went out to meet... Asa, and uh, said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now, we've read quite a few promises where God will not forsake us. But we have our part in that. If we forsake him, he backs off on us. And as I explained earlier, I don't think that means total forsaking until it becomes absolutely terminal. That is, the lake of fire. And then you are totally forsaken because you simply will not serve God. But if we go away from him, he says, I will turn and go away from you. But if you seek him, he will be found of you. And he tells tells us there in Jeremiah to seek him with all our heart, to find him, and he will be found of us. I think that's 31 or 33. I sometimes get those mixed up. Uh, Now for a long season, Israel had been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when they in their trouble did turn to the eternal God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. And in those times there was no peace to him that went out, nor to him that came in. But great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. The nation was destroyed of nation and city of city, for all God for God did vex them with all adversity. Be you strong, therefore. We've heard those words several times today. And let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And when Asa heard these words in the prophecy of Obed, the prophet, he took courage. Courage, be strong, same words we've read over and over. 
and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim and renewed the altar of the eternal that was before the porch of the eternal. Isn't that what he tells the church in Revelation 3? Repent of the sins, your self-righteousness and all that you've done and come find me and be found of me and be strong and of good courage and do the work. So he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with him out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon, for they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Eternal, his God, was with him. They turned to Asa then. So they gathered themselves together at Jerusalem in the third month, we're just beginning that Monday night, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. And they offered unto the Eternal the same time of the spoil which they had brought, seven hundred oxen and seven thousand sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Eternal their God, uh, or the Eternal God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. That's the way God wants to be worshipped. That's the first commandment. Worship me above everything. Totally. Put nothing ahead of me. What did he ask Abraham to do? I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. The son I promised you. The son you waited for. The son that you chuckled about when you realized this is really going to happen. That son. I want you to take him and I want you to put him on an altar of stone and I want you to slit his throat. That would be tough for some parents to do. I don't know of any parent that I've ever known who would have not have a problem with that. Abraham did not even ask a question. He just saddled his ass and says, Isaac, come on. There's somebody who believed in God with all his heart and put God above everything, including his beloved son Isaac. How many of us, if God came to us and said, I want you to sacrifice your son or your daughter or all your children to me? How many questions? How many doubts? How many problems would he encounter? Did he do such a thing? But he was willing. Had he not been willing to sacrifice the possibility of his son being dead forever, had he sinned once while he was on this earth, he would have had to die for his own sin, and God the Father would have been alone throughout all eternity except for some created beings that were with him, but no one on his level. God did not ask Abraham to do anything that he did not himself do. And he saved his own son, just as he saved Isaac, and a ram was caught in the bushes, and God said, oh, well, let's forget this Isaac thing. Go get that ram instead. And Abraham said, oh, wow. I'll bet he cried. I'll bet he just blubbered because that was tough. And it was tough on our Father to see Christ hanging on that stake for us. But he rejoiced in it because he knew Christ had not sinned and would be resurrected. And because of his death, our sins would be forgiven and we would be resurrected. Why have you forsaken me? <laughs> for the good of the universe. For the good of all mankind is why he forsook his son. God says he will never forsake us or leave us. I was going to read more now in Hebrews where he says I will never leave or forsake you. But I think just leave it right there. He forsook his son for a short time for a very powerful reason. But then he came right back to him 
resurrected him, glorified him, just as he will us. And he will not forsake us nor leave us. This is a sure promise. He forsook us, sort of, for a while. Said his anger would be short. And we return to him with all our hearts and with all our minds and put him first. He will turn and bless us again. Just as he always has through history. We've seen enough today without a few more examples to know that God's word is sure and that we will be taken care of. Not to worry. Be strong. Be of good courage. Fear not. I will not forsake you nor leave you. 